Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that explores the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. I am Bert Dreher, Chairman of the Department of Diagnostic, Molecular, and Interventional Radiology at the Mount Sinai Medical Center and the Icon School of Medicine, as well as a past president of the Radiologic Society of North America. I cordially invite you to sit back and relax as we journey through chest and cardiac imaging through the lens of the field's leading experts. And now, from the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, New York, it is my pleasure to introduce your hosts, Adam Bernheim and Michael Charlie. Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging. I am Adam Bernheim, and as always, I'm privileged to be joined by Mike Chung. Mike, uh, as we you know, sort of thaw out from the winter and start to head into the spring, it, uh, it's always a reminder that STR is quickly approaching. So uh, I know that everybody's very much excited about that. Uh, you in particular, you're, you're gonna be going this year and presenting. Uh, unfortunately, th this is a rare year that I'm going to have to miss, but uh, I'm sure it'll be a great conference, and I'm sure many of our listeners are as excited about it as you are. Yeah, I, I am excited to go. Uh, I'm sad that you won't be joining us, but I'm excited. I'm going to be talking a bit about cytopathology, uh, just as a guide for the chest interventionalist. It's a bit of a odd topic to talk about because um, it won't be super image heavy uh, from the radiology side, but uh, hopefully some of the audience can take away some useful pearls, especially uh, for those who do biopsies in their daily practice. Um, but yeah, I think the spring is just reminding me that it, it is conference season. I know that we'll both be at ARRS um, in Chicago later in the, in the spring, which is exciting. Yeah, hopefully we get to see many uh, people uh, as we are traveling around the, the country. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And I we, we do have a, a terrific podcast guest uh, scheduled today, somebody a little bit unique named Dexter Bostic. We will join our interview with Dexter in just a few moments. But uh, I just wanted to start off. I think that in the world of chest radiology and in the world at large, one of the topics on everybody's mind and at the top of the headlines for several weeks now has been the coronavirus infection, which uh, is a subject of interest to, I, I think, almost anybody in the world, but uh, per perhaps particularly so if you happen to be a thoracic radiologist. But Mike, what has it been like for you to react to an outbreak which has affected so many people across the globe? Well, I think you and I can both relate that this is probably the first disease process of its kind that we have encountered with since we've been attending radiologists. I guess even since we've been in uh, medical training even, uh, we haven't really seen something like this. And I, I, I guess if we think back to SARS back in 2003, both of us were either an either undergrad or maybe just thinking of going to medical school. So it's a totally different mindset when we approach something like this new coronavirus that's uh, really affecting China. And I think you and I were both talking about it today that um, uh, the death count, the WHO has just updated their numbers and it's reached over a thousand, uh, mostly within China. Yeah, as a chest radiologist, I think the it took a little time, but to think about this in kind of the realm of what we do on a daily basis. But I think once uh, you and I both started thinking about, oh, 
this is a really a pulmonary infection and it's going to have uh, imaging manifestations for sure. I think we both were very um, motivated and eager to, to explore this further. And I, I think that showed in, in just um, how quickly we were able to produce the manuscripts for a journal. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that I'd be curious to, to speak to some of the more senior radiologists who were practicing during SARS back earlier in the beginning of the century. And um, I think that this coronavirus infection, you're right, the death toll has surpassed 1,000 and it has surpassed that of SARS. Although the mortality per individual patient is lower, the overall number of people affected and number of people that have died has surpassed SARS already. Many epidemiologists seem to suggest that the pattern of epidemics is that they tend to sometimes get worse before they get better. And we may still be at the phase where we don't know if the apex has been reached yet, but it certainly is concerning. I think in particular, in light of the fact that many patients seem to be asymptomatic for quite a long period of time before they develop symptoms during which they're contagious and may have traveled. So uh, it's hard to know the trajectory of where this outbreak will lead itself, but certainly it's it's been uh, very impactful on many levels, and not just in China, but really globally. And you're right, at, at Mount Sinai, we've had the opportunity to see some of the cases from China of these patients, and there was uh, an article written in radiology that described some of those findings, and it was really remarkable for us to see a certain pattern of findings recur as a sort of a hallmark in these patients. We often saw ground glass opacities and consolidation, often with a peripheral lung distribution and sometimes a rounded morphology. Is that something that you were expecting to see? To be honest, I didn't know what to expect. Um, I figured it would be fairly nonspecific in general, but uh, I think you and I were both surprised when we started to see a pattern in the imaging where, like you just said, a lot of the disease in the lungs would be peripheral might even have an organizing pneumonia pattern, specifically the rounded morphology. I think on some of the cases, it's so striking and so round. Yeah, I, I think uh, both of us got excited when we started to see uh, that type of pattern develop. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think one of the things that we noted also was that there was a characteristic absence of other ancillary findings in the chest, such as lymphadenopathy and pleural effusions, cavitation, calcification. All of these findings were absent in, in the cases that we saw. And uh, I think that's interesting, at least in this acute phase. It's still perhaps a little bit early in the overall course of this epidemic to know what patients may look like as, as we move into the subacute or even chronic phase, if those some of those complications perhaps ultimately will develop, it'll be interesting to see as, as time goes on. But one of the things that we also noted, which I, I thought was really interesting and, and, and valuable to know, was that some patients who had known confirmed positive testing for coronavirus had normal CTs. And uh, we, we did see some of those cases. So that does suggest that while CT is foundational to the diagnostic algorithm for management of patients suspected with coronavirus, it does have a limited sensitivity and a less than perfect negative predictive value. So particularly in this case where you have an infectious contagious disease in the setting of an outbreak, I do think it's helpful to know that a negative CT scan does not rule out disease and perhaps in terms of decisions about patient isolation and treatment and management, can't hang our hat solely on the, on the CT alone. So Adam, I have a question for you, actually. Um, I, you know, this was only 21 patients that we looked at. What are you still questioning about this disease process? You mentioned a few things like how the disease will heal itself in some individuals. 
especially those with severe lung disease. But what other questions do, uh, do you have? Well, I think uh, it's still very early. So I think we're at the point where we're learning and we're understanding a disease process that's new and is manifest for the first time. So all of us together, having never heard of this virus until a few weeks ago, are now sort of discovering its pathophysiologic and clinical and imaging hallmarks for the first time. So initially, I think there are a lot more questions than answers. I think at this point, um, as you alluded to, one of the key questions I might have is the natural history or progression or evolution of disease with time, which I, again, I think it's still a little early to know or for us to fully understand, but hopefully it's something that we can elucidate as an as a imaging community uh, going forward, where you imagine that some patients may heal completely. In fact, even clinically, 80% of coronavirus infections are patients that just have mild disease. So uh, we would imagine that hopefully most patients will heal completely with no residual sequelae uh, in the lungs on imaging. But perhaps those that have more extensive disease, you wonder if it will evolve and organize, as, as you say, perhaps that's why we're seeing maybe a little bit of an organization pattern in, in some patients, where maybe that does partially explain why we might see a peripheral distribution in some patients. And I'm actually reminded of one of our earlier podcast episodes with Seth Kligerman, where he describes the lungs response to acute injury, where it organizes. And I think at that point, we cited a, a paper in radiographics that, that very nicely elucidated uh, that pathophysiology. And I remember the analogy that uh, Seth Kligerman gave, where the lung is not that different in some ways than the skin, where you have an injury, and the skin may respond by healing, or it may scar. And sometimes that scarring process is exuberant and out of proportion and excessive. And therefore, you, you lead to sort of this pattern of fibrosis uh, on the skin, like a keloid in the skin, but a similar process in the lung where you have organization and fibrosis. So I think maybe one of the questions going forward will be to see if patients follow that trajectory or if other complications develop. While we haven't seen things like cavitation, or empyemas, or lymphadenopathy, maybe that's only because those things don't happen early on. But it will be interesting to see going forward if, uh, if those kinds of complications do develop. And maybe, ideally, if we're able to learn enough information about the natural history and trajectory of disease, if we could predict those patients which are perhaps at higher risk for certain complications, that I think would be the ultimate question. Yeah, for myself, I think what was interesting about our study was that we uh, specifically looked at 21 patients who are not from the city of Wuhan. And I think that since Wuhan is technically ground zero, uh, that's where uh, we believe the infection started. Um, it would actually be interesting to see uh, the different imaging manifestations within those patients compared to those who are, who are outside or who have been infected in uh, secondary ways. So I think time will tell uh, once the physicians are able to get a better hold of the, the outbreak within Wuhan itself. Uh, just the research and the information that will come out uh, from that city, I think, will just be fascinating to see. Yes, I think you're right. I mean, as Wuhan is perhaps in a bit of a panic or crisis mode at the moment, as that hopefully will uh, stabilize and settle down and more research efforts can come out of there, I'm sure we can learn a lot. I think I might have a question for you also, Mike. I'm wondering what you think is the, is the role of the thoracic radiologist in, in sort of the global community of physicians or healthcare providers in fighting a public health infectious disease such as this one? Do you think that radiologists should be on the front lines 
in terms of having a role with helping the World, World Health Organization or helping to provide resources on the front lines in China. Uh, what, what do you see as the role of the thoracic radiologist in the year 2020 in the setting of an acute infectious epidemic? Well, historically, radiologists have, have played an essential role in the detection of respiratory infection during, out, during outbreaks. And uh, as chest radiologists, we'll likely assume a similar role um, as the world fights against this current epidemic. The chest radiologist role is exactly what you said. We are in the front line. If history is any indication with prior outbreaks, uh, this current uh, coronavirus outbreak is going to just provide another avenue for radiologists, especially if chest radiologists define our role as foundational. Uh, I know that's a word you like in the di diagnosis and management of this global health crisis. Uh, oftentimes we may be uh, the first to, to make the diagnosis or to suggest the diagnosis. Obviously it has a lot to do with the clinical history and whether you're in an area of the world where the, there's a high risk for infection. But without any of those um, clinical clues or any of that clinical information, I think it's important for the test radiologist to understand some of the imaging manifestations because the radiologist may literally be the first one who can suggest uh, coronavirus infection. Yeah, I think that's really valuable insight, Mike. And I, I, I thank you very much for that. I think it's really interesting. And uh, we'll keep updated as this epidemic uh, continues and hopefully it'll stabilize and eventually become old news quickly. That's certainly our hope. And uh, we'll, we'll continue to follow it. And we, we certainly hope that those people and those families in areas that are affected uh, are able to put this behind them quickly. And uh, we certainly hope that next time uh, we have a conversation, this is old news. But uh, I, I, want to, I want to change topics entirely, Mike, and, and ask you a, an unrelated question, which is, uh, have you ever been, during routine daily practice in the reading room, busy and bombarded with several priorities? Maybe you have uh, an important case that you're looking at and you're trying to teach a resident or a fellow at the same time, and then you also have an important phone call that's uh, waiting for you and an email right in front of you that needs to be answered and you have a meeting coming up and the, the study that you're looking at has an important finding and you're struggling to reach the doctor and uh, you're trying to sort of best manage the resources that you have and multitask. Have you ever been in that situation and, and wished that you had uh, a helping hand to help uh, take care of some of these minor stresses constantly coming up throughout the day to make you more efficient? <laughs> I encounter that situation daily, and probably all of those at the same time do occur on a daily basis. We're so busy as chest radiologists, uh, just with our clinical duties, and if you add on top of that research responsibilities, teaching duties, um, and just kind of being a clinician in the hospital, it can get overwhelming. So I know what you're hinting at, and I see our guest has entered the room, so I think we're going to be, we're, I think many questions are about to be answered for us. Yes, I, I think we've given a, an introduction to somebody who's very special. He does all of that and much more. He's the man who clears the smudges from your monitor when you're not even thinking or looking or aware and does so many things behind the scenes to help you shine and be the best radiologist that you can. Uh, we're very honored to be joined by a, a unique guest today in Dexter Bostic from Emory University in Atlanta. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. Hi, Dexter. Uh could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where you're from, and uh, where you went to college, and what you studied, and what ultimately uh, got you to work uh, in a hospital setting as a reading room coordinator? Yeah, I'm from Florida. I was born in the Gainesville, Florida, at Shands Hospital and Go Gators. 
I attended uh, the University of Florida uh, for a couple of years, and then shortly thereafter joined the Air Force. In the Air Force, I had opportunity to work in logistics and intelligence. And uh, what brought me to radiology was when I, after 10 years of the Air Force, I decided I wanted to try something new. I had a great friend in the Air Force who lived in Atlanta who asked me to come there. And we went around and sent some resumes out to different places and um, had an interview with Emory. And they made an offer and I took the position. Could you tell us a little bit about cardiothoracic radiology at Emory and how it has evolved over the years? What was it like when you started? For example, how many radiologists were there and how many hospitals were covered? What were typical volumes like versus now? Yeah, when I started at Emory in 1995, we were still reading x-rays, plain films, radiographs. And to see it evolve from 1995 to 2003 going digital uh, was amazing uh, to be working as a file room supervisor. Uh, the central hub of radiology in the film days where literally you went in the reading room to hang films, to take films out of the reading room, and where you were the hub for all the radiologists and the clinicians when they wanted films. Uh, to now go to digital where it's uh, pretty much no longer a file room, but we are now concentrated inside the reading rooms. Back when I started, there were four radiologists. We were covering one hospital. Um, As of today, we have eight radiologists and we're covering six hospitals. And what were the volumes like? I can imagine, well, I guess Emory is a special place. What was the evolution of the volume like over time? Um, Over time, um, the volume increased as the hospitals increased. Um, I remember seeing from 80 to 100 portables in the mornings to um, the film days to when we combine with, uh, merge with Emory Midtown, the portables will range from 150 to 175 from overnight. The CTs also, as we increase in hospitals, uh, you can get an average of 50 CTs a day. Well, CTs, but you can get an average of about, add another 20 to 30 CTAs along with those CTs. Um, so the volume definitely increased as the hospitals increased. And has there been just a change just in general of the culture, like sort of the, the feel of the reading room as the stresses on the radiologist have increased? Uh, yes, the, that's one of the keys. The stresses, the culture has increased as we went uh, with a, not only a new PACS, but a new dictation system, PowerScribe. Uh, now it was, you seem to be more efficient, but you have more work and you have less staff but you also have more studies. So it's, uh, efficiency is a challenge, but it's, it's uh, just reminds me of the, just I will say challenge, but it reminds me of those days my mom told me, told me that you will have challenges, but uh, in, in life, but you must deal with them. You can't avoid them. Any other thoughts as someone who has had this kind of front row view of how the field of cardiothoracic radiology in particular has changed over the years? Wow, it's changed dramatically. I remember just radiologists being in a reading room uh, or reading cases. Now we have cardiologists uh, assisting uh, a lot of cardiology uh, procedures are shared as well. And a lot of cardiology fellows as well. That's one of the main big differences from when uh, we started. There were no cardiology fellows, only radiology fellows. Uh, And that's been a challenge in itself because of the, the expectations of the cardiology fellow Uh, from the reading room coordinator is a little bit different than the radiologist uh, with certain aspects. Could you walk us through a typical day of work for you? 
what are some things that you do that help the radiologist in daily practice in terms of maximizing efficiency? Yeah, a typical day would um, always come in and try to look at what happened the day before, sort of so we I can get off on a good start. Um, and there's really uh, a couple of key things a reading room coordinator must know, and that's what you read and who's reading. And the reason you know want to know what you read is important is because there are procedures that show up that are not yours and you need to know how to address it or not address it. There are sometimes radiologists who select the wrong case that may be covering another area and you must know who's reading so you can identify the names that are reading studies from your list. Um, once you know that, then when you start your day, well, start my day, I uh, look at what has happened the night before to check to see if there were any missing images where I would need to contact a technologist. If there was anything missed from being read the day before, where well, I need to notify a radiologist. Once I've done that, um, I've got a pretty good start to the day where I can now focus on those things of the day as far as uh, being a liaison for the radiologist with technologists, assisting with getting clinicians on the call for important findings, or um, calling um, sometime results for portacafs, um, and a, n a number of things if they are working on research, helping them with uh, periodicals, printing out articles and stuff like that. So it's uh, during the day, there is a lot that comes, but prior to me doing anything, I would like to start off just on a good slate, knowing what's already happened. So then, then I can focus on what's going to happen. That's literally a list of everything I would like done for me every single day of the week. That's crazy. I mean, you, so obviously, it sounds like you do so many little things behind the scenes and big things um, that, that radiologists may not even notice all the time. Could you tell us about some of those things that uh, you do as well? Some of the little things that you do behind the scenes? Yeah, some of the little things that I do, I catch the session numbers that are non-billable. Um, so they're not dictating and having to do addendums. Catching uh, studies that have already been read that have not been linked that another radiologist may try to read. Also, checking images uh, on patients that have not been looked at, notifying technologists to send those images. And also what they have seen me do is clean the monitors uh, or just clean the workstations. That's something that I do to get the fingerprints off and um, to do that periodically. And I try to do that during noon conference when everyone's away um, so that uh, the monitors are free. But uh, those are some of the things that uh, I do. Do you hear that, Emory radiologists out there? Those monitors are being cleaned during your breaks. That's amazing. I, yeah. I think, yeah. That adds so much to uh, you wouldn't even notice the that. work environment. Yeah. 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 And one of the things that's interesting about Emory also uh, that many may not realize is that you are the reading room coordinator of the cardiothoracic section, but each section has a reading room coordinator. There's a neuro one, there's a body one, MSK, and at each hospital site, there is a different reading room, reading room coordinator as well. And uh, not only that, but there is reading room coordinator coverage 24-7. Could you describe for us a little bit about how off hours that any Emory radiologist working 24-7 has continuous reading reading room coordinator assistance? Yeah, certainly. The after-hour coverage is provided by the reading room coordinators at our Midtown campus, which is run 24 hours, which is the ETI division, which is the emergency trauma imaging division. There are reading room coordinators sitting at that desk 24 hours. There's two there from the morning until about 8 p.m., 
And then there's another reading room coordinator that comes in at 8 p.m. and stays until 7 a.m. So if there is a radiologist at either campus that needs assistance with images or with getting a hold of clinicians, um, they have a, 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 um, access to the reading room coordinator there at Midtown that supports uh, anyone who's working at the hours. And they also support the residents on calls as well while they're there overnight. I guess that brings up the question of whether um, an institution would need a reading room coordinator in-house. Um, I would probably argue that uh, that human connection with an individual and interacting with them on a daily basis and gaining that trust is more important than just farming out the coordinator system to just someone remotely. Do you have any thoughts on that or whether you know this could be the future of what being a reading room coordinator is like where everything is done remotely like it is done overnight? Yeah, I think that human connection is important. Reading room coordinators improve the radiologist's workplace satisfaction and productive, productivity, and I think that's best handled in-house. Uh, the human connection is important as well because they are affiliated and have a internal knowledge of the hospitals, the clinics, and not only the radiology sections, but also they have a connection with the other reading room coordinators. So if there's information that needs to be shared uh, the following day or there are follow-ups that, that need to be done while that reading room, covering, reading room coordinator covering is not there. So yeah, the human element I think is, is important. Dexter, some of our listeners are radiology residents. You have observed and worked with probably hundreds of radiology residents in your career. I'm curious what qualities you see that separate those residents that excel from those that struggle. So do you have any advice for the radiology resident? Well, I've been been really fortunate to work with amazing radiology residents all my years. I mean, and there are all types. There are the the ones you can see one day, they will be future chairs. You can see the development in those radiology re- residents, um, not only in what they do, because they all are smart. You know, they all are very, very smart, very bright. But it's the other things that they do as far as going the extra, making the extra call concerning about a patient, doing follow-ups on patients, on pathology, and things of that nature. And, and it's uh, gives me no greater joy than the after their four years are up and, they, and they're, they're gone, it's sort of bittersweet. It's a little bit sad at the same time, but you know they're moving on to bigger things. And I still keep in contact with a lot of them and they uh, share some of their experiences at their new place, but also are very appreciative of the help that the reading room coordinators assisted them with. So I would advise any resident, uh, I think it starts with having good attendings and, and we've been fortunate to have great attendings in cardiothoracic and try to follow that model. And um, if your attendings are great, then you can't help but be great because the bar is inset. That's great advice. And Emory does have a history of just having just really amazing cardiothoracic radiologists. And Dexter, do you have any memorable or funny stories to share over the years that um, may have happened in the, the cardiothoracic reading room um, and, or any other kind of lessons that you've learned that you might like to share? Um, well, one of the funny studies, one of the funniest uh, things that I remember uh, used to happen with one of our cardiologists, Dr. Larrakis. He would read from the single via workstation, and it was a, um, the monitor was a little smaller, and, and we all know when cardiologists look at lungs, uh, things can happen. And he would see a mass, and he would just yell uh, for one of the radiologists uh, uh, to come over, and he would just say in this nice Greek voice, mass, mass. And um, when the radiologist would go over and it was just funny to hear him say it, but 
you knew he had a truly concern because he thought he saw a mass and sometimes there was one. And a radiologist will either confirm or, or deny that, hey, yeah, this is what they see. Um, so that's one of the funniest moments, uh, I think. And one of the other funniest moments is we have a radiologist, Dr. Berkowitz, who never gets cold. And uh, one day it, the temperature got very cold where he even needed uh, a blanket. And there's a picture now saved on our Mac research PC where he is covered with a blanket because that is a memorial picture that this guy who never got cold was cold in this one instance. So, yeah. What's Dr. Berkowitz's nickname? Papa Bear. Papa Bear. Yeah. Papa Bear never Papa, gets cold. Papa yeah. Bear never gets cold. Except yeah. for once. Except for he got cold once. Yeah. And I think Adam and I, well, I think we do have to say that we're honored to still be working with Dr. Larrakis today as he's a, as he's a cardiologist at Mount Sinai now. So uh, I have the pleasure of, actually, I haven't heard him say mass. It's Moss. Moss. <laughs> Having served as a cardiothoracic radiology reading room coordinator for many years, what career goals do you have for the remainder of your career? Huh, career goals. That's um, something that I used to think a lot about, but uh, haven't thought about often. I uh, Now that my kids are, are grown and, and older, um, my two pride and joy, Ashley and Jordan, I just want to finish out the rest of my career uh, at Emory and doing the doing whatever I do, if it's reading coordinator seal, if it's something else, being the best at it and hoping to uh, to accomplish something you know, while, while doing that. But uh, um, since my kids are now adults, I am looking on the other side of uh, retiring uh, six or seven years and enjoying uh, spending time with uh, my family uh, and watching my kids uh, pursue and evolve in their careers. I just wanted to add that just hearing you speak, it kind of dawned on me that you've probably saved indirectly or directly thousands and thousands of lives in the hospital system in the course of your career. So um, more than any other kind of physician or even more than any other radiologist, uh, you've probably had your hand on um, so many people's patient care, which is um, quite astounding and amazing, I think. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's absolutely true. And and also, I think that many don't realize, but Dexter probably knows the inner workings of the hospital and the department and what's going on more than even the radiologists. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, his relationship with, let's say, a, a chair is is probably in many ways deeper than, than what a, a radiologist might have. Well, thank you. Yeah, I work with some exceptional radiologists. Uh, uh, some I've been working with longer than others, but it's truly a... Uh, a joy, truly a, a relationship in, in more ways of friendship that I have, I have with them. I, I think, you know, Dexter, I think at this point, you know, just about everything about cardiothoracic radiology and you're ready to read some cases. Would you be up for that? Hey, let's read some CTs, but no, I'm, I, I tell you, I, I give a homage to the radiologists, not only for the undergrad years, the med school years, the residency years, the fellowship years, the research years, there's so much training that goes into being a radiologist that it's it's uh, you have to just appreciate that within itself, the knowledge that you get before you are even reading on your own. But um, I couldn't even fathom what to do or as many radiographs or cross-sectional CTs as I've seen. Uh, um, there are some things I can point out very clearly, a negative chest x-ray, but uh, beyond that, I could not be of any assistance reading anything. I think you can pick up on a pneumothorax, pneumoperitoneum, pleural effusion, pneumonia, lung cancer. A moss. Ah, maybe a moss. Yes, yes. 
but I don't, I don't, I think you could do it without even breaking a sweat, just like a uh, Papa Bear right next to you. I don't know if Papa Bear doesn't break a sweat. That's one thing. He's he's a genius. But uh, I think with me, I'll uh, I may break a sweat. I may need that blanket that he was wearing as well. The reading coordinator is very important in helping you maneuver through your your, your time in the reading room. It was something that uh, initially when I started doing it, I had to figure it out. But as uh, was figuring it out and saw what the needs were, it became a lot more uh, instead of reactive, a lot more proactive uh, approach to to doing this job. Dexter, so you, you, you've seen attendings come and go. You've seen attendings stay with you for years and years and years. What is it like on like an attending's first day in a, in a hospital system like Emory when they're thrown into the fire? Are they just like deer in the headlights, just like a resident would be again? Uh, yeah, because, you know, they're, they're trained, of course, by our trainers who are very good at uh, Emory and on the power scribe and on the packs. But not until you get in that setting where you have your work list and your things that if there's just a little glitch with PowerScribe and you hit the wrong button, a reading room coordinator, I think that's why it's important that they must know the radiologist's workflow can assist with that. And, and I'll, I'll always, whether they ask for help or not, assist new radiologists daily with just looking at cases, how to launch something, if something doesn't go right, if they do launch um, but it, it is very challenging that first day, I would say that first few days, yeah. until they're sort of in a flow where things are a lot less comfortable for them. Thank you so much, Dexter, for your time and for joining us today. We wish you safe travels back to Atlanta. Thank you for listening to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that journeys through the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. We hope you have enjoyed listening and look forward to seeing you next time.